Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy and freedom fighter extraordinaire, Robert Barnes. Robert, welcome to the show, my friend. Glad to be here. All right. So we have this FOIA request and this has been going on, what, a year now or so, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Almost two years. Two years? Yeah. I mean, mean, because we started this, I think, late 2020 uh it, it is when the whole process began and we went through you know the fed gave every i mean remember the, the fed went in and changed the whole rules they did that because yeah. uh, yeah. they did that almost uh, two years to the day i mean like as soon as we announced what we we're going to do they went in i think in march of 2021 if i recall right and went in and changed the rules to make it more diff basically more bureaucratically cumbersome uh yeah. with more administrative traps just to get the records, any records from the Federal Reserve. And, you know, as we said at the time, maybe it's a coincidence. It's, you know, after we announced big FOIA of the Fed, but, you know, tell you uh, how many coincidences have not exactly been coincidences over the last two years yeah. uh, or last three years. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that timeline does sound right. Because I remember when we first started talking about it, we were grabbing dinner in, in Vegas. And I remember that, uh, walking through the casino that was a time when they were making it mandatory for you to wear a mask uh you know we i think i forgot how we got around that but anyway i, I remember that so yeah that, oh, we were that, eating so it was still you know the governor sisilak who's now gone thankfully from the from the from the state capitol uh with sheriff lombardo replacing him you can yeah it's probably gonna be a mixed bag but yeah the uh, uh that was one of the exceptions but still then in vegas was if you were at a restaurant you didn't have to wear a mask yeah 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 so anyway okay so we've gotten it is obvious we knew it was going to be a long process we knew nothing was going to happen quickly and we knew the fed was going to try to push it out and they're trying to give it they're going to try to give us every single excuse to uh, make it hard on us and make us spend more money and try to encourage us just to wave the white flag and kind of give up. We haven't done that. And now, according to um, our direct message conversation the other day, you've received quite a bit of feedback from the Fed and you've received a couple documents that we might, we might be able to release to the general public to give them an idea of kind of the back and forth between you and the, the Federal Reserve's representatives. Absolutely. So, I mean, we requested basically an audit of the Fed uh, to using the Freedom of Information Act to do it. Federal Reserve, unbeknownst to most people, is in fact subject to the Freedom of Information Act laws that's been established by multiple court cases after the global financial crisis, when no less than uh, Bloomberg uh, was the one knocking on the door asking a few questions. Uh, Not the big questions, but at least some questions. And so consequently, we and then we had a forensic accountant who's a former bank auditor make part of the request to get to what kind of information he would want as a bank auditor to audit the Fed. And then we had our sort of wish list, you know, all these new entities you guys created in 2020. What exactly was your legal authority for that? And we decided, hey, let's go back through history. Uh, You know, back when you were discussing things around, I don't know, 1916, so on and so forth. uh, What exactly were you guys conversing about, say, the scope of the income tax laws and the 16th Amendment? Uh, What were you saying about the scope of your own authority at the Federal Reserve? When can you just exceed your congressional mandate? When can you just ignore federal law limitations? 
and constitutional restrictions. So basically, it was the wish list, bucket list of everything everybody ever wanted from the Fed we requested. They went through every shenanigan tool trap you could possibly know. First, they said, oh, man, it's a pandemic. Golly gee, we would love to get back to you, but we just need a little more time. So they used every administrative hurdle, every delay tactic. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the well, you know, I'm sick. I would love to come in kind of thing. And ultimately their excuse was, you know what? We would love to get these records for you, but we don't know how to search our own records. Yeah. We yeah, don't the dog ate my homework. Yeah, exactly. We would <laughs> the love dog to ate do it. it. I don't know what, what happened. We've got this federal reserve dog and damn it. The thing got hungry and ate all our records. Exactly. But we don't even know how the, 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 the dictionary or the language works. We don't know what these things you call algorithms and search engines are. We, we don't know how to look up our own records. We don't have a library index key card. We don't have a means of like they don't on a regular basis type in certain subtopics for their uh, meetings to know what's going on. Uh, so we would love to help, but we couldn't. So realizing the game they were playing, we came back and said, well, tell us your entire internal indexing protocol. How do you digitize records? Where and when do you digitize records? Who has access to those records? What search engines do you have available? What library key cards, if you will, in the digital space do you have? Uh, what email access do you have? Tell us how you store records so that we could have a permanent roadmap we could share with the world that says, here's how to request records from the Fed. Yeah, here's right. how they index and organize their own records. And that was one of our main objectives, Robert. It wasn't necessarily just to win or do any of this stuff or to get rid of the Fed, but to kind of open up the door and make it easier for just normal everyday people to do these FOIA requests in the future to hold their feet to the fire legally. Absolutely. To sort of democratize the FOIA process so everybody can be their own individual auditor of the Fed right. using the Fed's own rules and protocols. And the goal is to de design templates that we would share with the world. Here's how, where and when to request records uh, and what language to use, what categories to use. But for that, we needed the Fed's own internal documentation on it. They initially denied it. We went through the appeal process. It looked like uh, on the eve of it looked like we weren't going to win the appeal. We were going to have to file suit. On the eve of filing suit, uh, over the last several uh, weeks or uh, last several two weeks or so, all of a sudden the Fed came back and said, well, hold on, maybe we do have some stuff. Mm. But they sent it in a lot of technical language. So we are currently pouring through it to decipher it, decode it, and then we're going to share it with the world as here's how you do it. Now, we may do our own version of that. We may use their own lingo and language, take our original FOIA request, recast it, reframe it in their uh, purported internal terminology. Got it. So that they finally have to disgorge documents they don't want the world to see. Here's what's clearly the case. You're definitely right on the right trail because no way, I said early on, I said, if we're on the wrong trail, they'll produce whatever's there because mm. there you won't be afraid of its public disclosure. They went through more shenanigans in this FOIA request, and I've been doing FOIA requests for the better part of a quarter century, more sh uh, shenanigans than any agency has ever done in any FOIA case I've ever had, wow. which means we're right on the right track and on the right trail. There's a, uh, there's a depository of treasury uh, of information, a treasure trove of information sitting in the Fed's document vaults uh, that might be more useful and applicable than the gold at Fort Knox. Or you know what it reminds me of recently, Robert, are the Twitter files. You know, oh, all precisely. the information that that we that came out that uh, all of us assumed, but none of us had any definitive proof. 
And then when those Twitter files came out, now all of a sudden here's the smoking gun that proves that this has been happening behind the scenes. And I think these uh, this FOIA request from the Fed could be just as powerful. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things we wanted was not only the whole history, not only how they created every special vehicle in 2020 uh, and what their own internal communications and correspondence was about the legal authority of that. They, I mean, the issue of, of have they had personal internal discussions about the legality and appropriateness of, say, a wealth tax? Uh, right. Because I, I've seen from other files and other locations that high-ranking bankers were discussing internally the scope, permissible scope of the 16th Amendment. And that would just be interesting in their policies. But one of the key things we went after is something that's very current, which is we requested all their files concerning internal discussions about a central bank digital currency, about mm -hmm. a Fed coin. And we, we now know, based on how they're trying to experiment with it, other countries are trying to experiment with it, that we were right on a hot topic. But that's one of the key pieces of information we want, because I'm sure there's tons of very interesting, very insightful internal discussions about what the true purpose of that would be, about its surveillance capacity, about its control capacity, about its non-monetary policy uh, driven political decisions behind utilizing such a central bank digital currency. Yeah, I mean, I started talking about that. I remember 2019. And everyone was calling me a conspiracy theorist. But as time goes on, it's just they, they, they themselves talk about it more and more and more to where now you hear them talk about it on CNBC. Absolutely. And also, we know, we requested all their internal conversations about a range of internal uh, decisions made about issues related to, say, for example, inflation. Like, I would be very curious how much have they had internal debates about the things that you've been discussing lately. Uh, to what degree uh, have they had discussions about a Jeff Snyder versus other discussion about how much does the federal, the Fed actually control inflation? Uh, or or, how much or have any control over the monetary system. That exactly. would be a fascinating internal debate there if they had it. You know they've almost guaranteed had internal discussions about it, internal reports. How much do we really control this? How much of this is perception versus reality? How much of this is all for show? How much of this uh, can we distract from the problems that have now been created by the, uh, the the system of money being distributed by you know random foreign banks and other people actually controlling U.S. currency valuation for uh, in the international markets? So uh, you know there's a lot of interesting intel buried in there. Uh, and and that would also have there been retrospectives. Did they do ret like your topic the other day? Did, did the Fed do a retrospective about how their 2007 prediction of a soft landing turned out not so prescient? Uh, have they <laughs> I, you almost guarantee somebody's done a memo somewhere? Somebody's done an email somewhere? Because that's what the Twitter files show. You know, one of my favorite principles is uh, quoting Earl Long, never in writing and always in cash. When it comes to the government, these people can't help themselves. They always put it in writing. So I would really like to see what, what what's there. And to give everybody around the world a roadmap for how they individually, if they have a particular topic they're interested in, they can use the system we're creating, an, a template, so they can go at the Fed on a daily basis. Just flood them with interesting, useful, informative FOIAs so that we can Twitter file the Fed for the next decade. Yeah, th that's what I think is most important. So you're going through the most recent documents right now, determining from your professional uh, standpoint as to whether it would be 
advisable or not maybe to release some of these documents that you've gotten from the Fed to the general public via Twitter or uh, maybe on this YouTube channel or maybe a combination of both. I, I can understand how that might not be a, a good strategy based on kind of where we are with the Fed, but maybe there's some documents that we could release that might not impact our the, the probability of us achieving our goals. And that's kind of what you're going to mull over in the next few weeks. Is that correct? Exactly. The goal is to make sure to make this information useful, that people aren't misled by it. If we just disclose mm. the documents without some guidepost to figure to interpreting it, to translating right. it, then it would be like a dump. It would be like if, if Musk had just done a dump of everything uh, on the Twitter files without being able to organize it, understand its context, then people might get lost. People might go down rabbit holes that lead them in the wrong place, the wrong path. Mm. People might file premature uh, requests that don't get them anywhere, that aren't productive. So our goal is to make this as productive as possible for everybody. Got and that it. requires filtering and interpreting this information and then presenting it to everybody in an accessible format so they can utilize it to empower them to go forward. That's fantastic. Yeah, I want to remind everyone that you're going to be at Rebel Capitals Live in Orlando, May 12th through the 14th. So maybe, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but maybe that'll give you enough time and you can incorporate that into your presentation at Rebel Capitalist Live. That would be that would be. Oh, absolutely. Cool. That's definitely part of the objective. Okay, so now moving on to more recent topics here, I wanted to get an idea as to what you're thinking about, what's on your radar. And I know you and, and your partner, Viva, get into the nitty gritty of the freedom and liberty and the, the assault on our freedom and liberty from the central planners and the authoritarians. You guys get uh, neck deep in this almost on a daily basis. So I, I want to hear what you guys think are the most important topics right now. I would say it's twofold. I mean, one is the ongoing battle for medical freedom. So the right now, the uh, with Bobby Kennedy, uh, I'm suing the federal uh, the, the Food and Drug Administration and the Center for uh, for Disease Control, the FDA and uh. the CDC. One case is pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court will decide in mid-February whether, whether they will take it. Another one's pending before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the question is, can you sue the government when the government is the source of these vaccine authorizations and mandates? Mm -hmm. And the government's excuse is, well, we just approved it. We didn't mandate it. Somebody else did. And when you sue the agency that mandated it, they said, well, we didn't approve. They mandated it for their own employees, didn't they, Robert? Oh, yeah, they, they did in many in some contexts. Yes, the Biden administration did those injunctions. Okay. Those have mostly been stopped. But what basically happens is but for the CDC and the FDA putting the vaccine on certain lists, whether it's the emergency use approval authoriz author authorization list or claiming it's licensed, but the licensed one is unavailable or putting it on the kids list, the kids vaccine list. Those three decisions in some cases automatically make states have say that if the CDC approves, it's now mandated for your kid to go to school to take uh, and things like that. But if you sue the school district or if you sue, say, the military or other people or you sue your private employer, they say we're just following what the FDA did or said. And what the FDA says is we didn't mandate it. We just approved it. The mandators say we didn't uh, approve it. We just mandated it. So mm -hmm. nobody can be sued. It's one of these games of nobody's able to be sued for causing the injury. 
Yeah, it reminds so, me of that Spider-Man meme where they're both like pointing at each other. <laughs> exactly. It's like a bunch of feds getting together. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's that kind of routine. So those cases are going forward. We have big vaccine mandate lawsuits going forward against Tyson Foods, against 3M, against employers. I got cases in about half dozen, actually have more than a dozen states now. Uh, going, we got, have about to file one or did just file one against Madison Square Garden. So all these, we're going to keep fighting those cases for medical freedom all the way through the process, regardless of how much hurdles we face from the courts or from big corporate adversaries, because it's critical to establish as a precedent going forward that they can never do this again. Mm-hmm. On the the other big issue, really, is that's kind of new is food freedom. So I represent Amos Miller, the Amish farmer, who at one point uh, the government was trying to uh, actually put in jail, uh, impose a $300,000 plus contempt fine judgment against him, put, make it a monetary judgment where they could seize and shut down his farm and add his wife to the judgment. Now, and that was going to happen by the way, on Christmas Eve. And why, why, what was, what were the charges against him? Like what did he do uh, wrong in their mind? giving people food that people want and people like. Uh, that's the short answer, but it's non-USDA approved food. It's not big agriculture food. It's not big corporate. It's not big food company food. So what he does is he's Amish, uh, comes from an Amish set of farmers that have been making food the same way for centuries. Anybody who studied the Amish know that despite certain risks uh, and genetic histories, they are as, as, a, as a group healthier than their surrounding community. They live longer, their life expectancy is better, their anxiety levels are lower, their depression levels are lower, their need for medical care is lower, their cancer rates are lower, their heart disease rates are lower, their stroke rates are lower. And is it a coincidence that they often don't take vaccines and big pharma and they and they rely upon natural food? So they don't put a bunch of preservatives on it. They don't put citric acid on their meats. They they grow their food. They make their food. They make it in the healthiest, most sustainable ways. And what's happened over the last decade or so is a bunch of people have discovered that their bodies are deteriorating from all this big corporate food that has all these chemicals in it, has all this crap in it, so on and so forth, preservatives. So they've sought out who makes food the old-fashioned way, the way our ancestors ate it. And, and they found, oh, it's the Amish. And so they reached out to Amos Miller and they're buying what I call farm fresh milk means, you know, not ultra pasteurized milk. Uh, anybody that's tasted it. I mean, when I was drinking it uh, uh, on a couple of shows, I was, I was, I was saying, you know, go to Amos Miller organic farm.com and you can get farm fresh milk today just mm-hmm. to screw with the feds. <laughs> the uh, people thought that I was on, uh, uh, I, was, I was doing lines of cocaine. They're like, man, but, but there must be some cocaine or something in that milk because farms are like, whoa, 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 whoa. The, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but that's it, how but, good. But it's similar, correct me if I'm, I mean, I'm not a milk expert, but it's similar to the raw milk that I think you might be a little younger than I am, but I just turned 50. But um, but back when I was young, you used to be able to get raw milk, right? I mean, and I, that's what this I is. remember that, right? This is raw milk. You remember how refreshing that is? I mean, the first time I had it, I was like, Holy, this is how mo this is how mo, uh, milk is supposed to taste. And yeah. that's how good his milk is. I mean, it's amazing. It just had, like, it's had a lot more cream. It was a lot more kind of creamy or whatnot. But I remember you still used to be able to buy that just like you could buy 2% or skim or non-fat or whatever. That was like an option in the grocery store. So is it correct to assume that that's no longer an option? It's very difficult. It depends on the state. The FDA technically still doesn't allow it. 
they and then the USDA, who's been real aggressive in, in this context, they're the ones who are requiring you. You can only make meat the way we say you do. What, and what, what's happened what is their argument against raw milk. Uh, it's solely that ultra. It, it's a. It's kind of like the vaccine context where they claim credit for ultra pasteurized milk solving problems related to milk in the late 19th century. When if you dig in, the problem with milk in the late 19th century was the sudden urbanization of America and all the things that went with that sudden urbanization in terms of the conditions that the cows were in uh, suddenly radically shifted from the farm to somebody's backyard. And the consequence of that, along with other sanitary issues with sudden urbanization, was the real related issue of milk. Joel Salatin does a great job of this. He wrote one of my favorite titled books of all time. Uh, he might be a fun guy for you to interview, too. Uh, it's called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. Uh, you know, the uh, he has a great whole Latin American story. His dad was a farmer in Venezuela. The government took over, stole all their land, had to come back to the United States. But he's one of the the true fresh food people in this industry, you know, having free range chickens. I mean, people don't realize we the, the industrialization of our food supply, not a great idea. And then wow. you throw in Bill Gates buying up all that food, buying up all the all the land, the agricultural land in America. Well, he doesn't intend to actually use it for agricultural purposes because he wants to sell, you know, his fake meat, his, his all, all that kind of stuff uh, to people. I don't think he's going to be eating. It was like the people that went to Davos. You know, I, I don't think they're eating any fake meat at the low, at, at those Swiss restaurants. Just like they, they are only pilots they wanted were, and the only drivers they wanted were the unvaccinated kind because they didn't want any sudden, you know, down going down. Yeah, the I wonder if they had thing. that stipulation for their prostitutes. Robert, yes, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> unvaccinated only. The, uh, you know, so the, uh, so uh, it, basically they they went after him initially, Amos Miller. On the grounds that they accused, they said that some raw milk that got sold somewhere, somebody got sick on, never turned out to be any evidence I've ever seen for that. Hmm. Uh, he's never had a customer ever complain about him. And the irony of this case is he's been stopped from selling his meat primarily. Uh, now, not all meat. Certain meat is exempt from the U.S. laws. So you can still buy buffalo. You can still buy bison. You can still buy certain meat from him. But you, you couldn't buy any steaks. Uh, any cow meat, you couldn't buy any pork, you couldn't buy any chicken, you couldn't buy any turkey, because the USDA says it has to be run the industrialized way, effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and consequently, tons of people who not only want his food, I mean, this is the big irony, the US Department of Agriculture was formed after Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, as a, just like the FDA was formed, as a labeling agency. Like the FDA is not supposed to be a big, you know, everybody's doctor, which is what they are, what, what they're pretending to be. Yeah. The same way the USDA is not supposed to be everybody's farmer. Almost 95% of the people who work at the USDA have never farmed in their lives. And yet they're yeah. telling farmers how to do things. They were supposed to be a labeling agency because what was happening in the early 1900s, you go to the local store, you buy a can of corn, open it up and it's like kidney beans. It's like, well, what the heck? So the, uh, so they're supposed to say that what's inside that package the label is accurate about. That's all they were supposed to be. Mm. And instead, they've used that labeling authority. As you've talked about many times, you give the government just a little inch. Right. And they're going to go in and take about 10 miles. And that's what they did. They're, they're now wanting to control what we're allowed to eat. Because here you have a situation where everybody knows what they're buying from Amos. And they want, because that's exactly what they want. 
They mm. want the meat that's not with citric acid, without these preservatives, without this industrial corporatized means of making food. They don't want, you know, when they buy their chicken food, they want their chicken to be free range. They don't want it to be from chickens in industrial factories who are busy spending each day eating their own feces. That's not what they want. Right. right? And so, but that's exactly what the USDA has shut down for years um, and then basically was threatening him with jail and contempt and bankruptcy if he didn't play ball. Now, the U.S. attorney involved in the case is a very reasonable person and has been figuring, trying to figure out a way to get a, a practical solution to the whole case. And he agreed. You know, the we we ended the uh, Amos did not go to jail on Christmas Eve, didn't have to pay a huge fine, didn't it wasn't didn't get a monetary judgment. We were able to to stop that from happening. So that was Great. the first Great. Big win win for Amos. But now the second big win is let's establish a basis where all of us as Americans get to eat the food we want. And that yeah. all that should matter is just like in, in the medical freedom context, everything should be based on informed consent. Yeah. That's exactly what Milton Friedman argued for in the 1970s. And he was dead on right. It, it, it should be about what I, you know, make, just make sure the information is accurate. Right. That, that's a permissible role. But as, but if I know what I'm getting, I get to choose not some bureaucrat in Washington, DC, what medicine goes into my body or what food I choose to eat. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's what it's really, this whole case is all about. And it's a case that will impact everybody. Yeah. I, bravo, by the way. And, and, and tell the guy, you know, good luck. We wish him all the best from the rebel capitalist community. Uh, you just reminded me, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but here in Medellin, that's all I eat is buffalo or bison. Mm. I, I think it's kind of interchangeable, but I, eat, I, I rarely eat uh, beef unless I'm out like a restaurant or something like that. But every so night. Hey, you could probably get better, fresher food in Colombia than you can right now in America. Well, I guarantee you that. Well, I shouldn't guarantee you because I don't know, but I can't imagine that they would have a law here that would prevent a farmer just selling his uh, meat or his vegetables or his fruit just right out on the street with no you know, authority or no regulation or no license. I know that for a fact because I drive from here to the lake, Lake Guadalupe, which is about an hour and a half drive. And once you get out off the highway for about 45 minutes, all you see are just stands on the side of the road because that's a big farm area uh, of, of farmers just selling whatever it is they grow. And I can almost assure you that they're, they're not growing things based on the oversight of the Colombian government or approving the watermelons or the papayas or whatever that you're buying from them right off the side of the, the little windy road that goes to the lake. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists 
that are taking their investing to the next level. It's amazing is uh, the old uh, populist from Amer- from Louisiana, Huey Long, predicted this all the way back in 1932, uh, 1933, after the New Deal started. He said, you know, what they're going to do is they're going to have ABC agency is going to tell you how many chickens you can grow. And then XYZ agency is going to tell you how fat your pigs can be. And that's exactly where we're now at to yeah. the degree that it's not just, you know, limiting farmers, which create, we saw in the pandemic, this is a food supply problem. People don't know almost 90% of American food is controlled by a few corporations. That's not a good position to be in as it got exposed during the pandemic, as we now see with the price of eggs, you know, for Valentine's, don't get your loved one a, a, a ring, get her a dozen eggs because that that's more value. It's that kind of world we're living in, but that has a higher risk when we don't have a bunch of small farmers. So it's not just about you getting to control your own, what goes into your own body. Farmers, allowing farmers to, de- to determine how they farm. But it's also about making sure our food supply isn't easily contaminated, isn't easily subject to bioweapons attack, doesn't have a sudden pandemic collapse where a food supply becomes a major problem with prices and accessibility. That's where a- Amos's case, I mean, at one point they were even telling some of the U.S. Department of Agriculture people, we're even trying to tell Amos what his own family could eat. And who could eat what? I mean, that's how nuts it got. He, that he a farmer telling a farmer what he can feed his own family. Uh, that's how. That's why this goes is such a broad impact issue on public policy ground. How do they control everybody. like farmers markets and stuff? Because isn't that what a farmers market is? Is it just the the farmers selling directly to the public without the oversight of the government, or do they still have to get things approved? They usually have to. It depends on the state. They usually have to get things approved, and in certain circumstances, under the under the USDA's current interpretation. Amos can't even sell this at a farmer's market. Uh, Mm. So, I mean, that's where they're going. When they get to the point they're trying to, I mean, people didn't pay a lot of attention to it. It got a little sort of uh, flashy news line and then disappeared. But it's not a coincidence the Biden administration was floating the idea of requiring everybody to register their own gardens in their own backyards. And I would be like, remember that little headline came up and said, hey, make sure to tell us whether you have a garden. That's where it's going. They want complete control over the food supply because if you control the food, you control people's medicines, you effectively control people's bodies. And that historically is that if you don't own your own body, you can't control what goes into your own body. What do you control? What do you own? Yeah. You know, it reminds me of that. Uh, Josh, can you do me a favor while we're talking? Can you go ahead and pull up that quote from Henry Kissinger, the one that says that if you control the, the 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 food, I think you control the population. If you control the energy or the oil, you control countries, and if you control the money, you control the world. Yep. It was I think I'm getting that. Yeah, absolutely. That correct. Because that was always the. You remember that quote, Robert? Oh, absolutely. Because that was the uh, old Putin debate. Yeah. Here you uh, go. If you control the food, you control the nation, a nation. If you control the energy, you control a region. If you control the money, you control the world. Exactly. And and that, in effect, is what their goal is to do. The central bank digital currency control the world. Now, of course, their failed efforts at at going after Russia has probably put that back a little bit for half the world. But the... uh, as people discover, ah, maybe not so interested in being linked up to the Western financial system if they can take it away tomorrow. The but the uh, but they're still full throttle on the food part, and yeah. and that's where it's about. It's always been about control. And here again, if you look at like Bill Gates, is it really a coincidence? The three things the guy's been obsessed with 
is controlling medicine, controlling food, and control and, and promoting digital identification and digital currencies, including in India and elsewhere. James uh, Corbett did a great documentary on Bill Gates all the way back at the beginning of the pandemic, where he says, "Here's you, you can predict where the world, where their elites are going to go, where the Davos types are going to go, by just looking at Bill Gates's history. Where has he spent his money? Where has he been paying attention? And those have been his three obsessions. And this is a guy you've been mentioning it. He idolizes Rockefeller." Rockefeller was obsessed with population control, talked about using vaccines to do population control back in the 60s. The Rockefellers, of course, were big in eugenics, helped put in a lot of the eugenics places in Nazi Germany. That's where Hitler got all of his ideas from. Uh, and it goes all the way back to tied into the Malthusian uh, obsession with energy, with resource control to yeah. get population control, to get ultimate control. And that's why the Amos Miller case looks like just a little Amish farmer just wants to make food the way he's been making it for centuries that everybody loves. Uh, his little case is ends up having global consequences for the world. Yeah, yeah. Very well said. And I'd also like to point out the fact that, number one, I've been calling them the Malthusian cult on this channel and, and on Twitter. I think that's a perfect way to describe them. And also, I'd like to point out the fact that, assuming Gates goes to Davos, every year, which I think he does, uh, so does Kissinger. Oh, so yes. what are the probabilities that Gates has had dinner multiple times and rubbed elbows and had kind of brainstorming sessions with Kissinger and, and Klaus and, you know, all these people that uh, back in the day when he was kind of a, a tech geek or whatever could maybe influence him to think about these Malthusian ideas in, in a positive light. Just go back to 2009, where he organized a meeting with, uh, I believe it was George Soros, uh, Bloomberg, one of the Rockefellers, Oprah Winfrey. I think I remember turned. that. I remember. I did a story on that. Yep. Remember they they showed him as the, the media tried to portray them as superheroes. They even yeah. put like Superman <laughs> things and Batman, like oh, they Bill Gates superhero to the rescue is going to control the world. I mean, the guy's like right out of a Bond villain movie. Increasingly, I think all these things are like Bond villain movies were basically predictions of our future, the way things have turned out. Yeah, yeah. Like the Simpsons, almost. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I want to get your take on uh, two things I just remember that I wrote down. Number one, the most recent Pelosi video. And then number two, this Veritas video with uh the kid from pfizer <laughs> and just the one where he gets caught on record and the one where he's just absolutely freaking out well first on the pfizer one the i mean i have i represent brooke jackson the big whistleblower bringing a claim against uh on behalf of the entire people of the united states against pfizer for okay. its fraud uh now what's amazing is pfizer has been screaming and begging and yelling at the judge please 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 whatever you do don't let uh, Barnes have any discovery in the case. Uh, Barnes is a dangerous man. Barnes is a bad guy. Barnes goes out there saying all these things. They actually, Pfizer follows me around in clips every little time I appear somewhere. And they usually take the clip out of context and all that, saying, see, judge, this is a troublemaker, judge. This is a troublemaker. The, oh, uh, and the judge, you know, so far has gone along with Pfizer's request, not allowed us any discovery. He even uh, kind of complained to me last time. He goes, I see that uh, Mr. Barnes referred to my discovery decision as a wuss decision. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, kind of was a wuss decision. God bless you, Judge. think you're a great guy. But uh, that was kind of a wuss decision. But now we see why 
Pfizer doesn't want any discovery. And why they're like one of their obsessions was a judge. If you give Barnes any discovery, he'll probably disclose it to the world. Well, what are they so scared of if there's not anything to hide? Well, now we know because all Project Veritas has got to do is catfish one of these corporate executives. And, you know, some people for a date bring you roses. Other people confess their crimes. This guy would just bow. Yeah, let me tell you what we do. We do a little uh, variant mutation. We do, a, you know, because there's no better way to build demand for your new vaccine by making sure that the virus has mutated in a way that will make right. the, the, create the need for that vaccine. What it's did like you call it? Something evolution, controlled evolution, directed evolution. Directed it's evolution. not, you know, it's not uh, gain of function. Let's not oh, call no, it that. Let's just not. call it directed evolution. <laughs> the uh, their terminology is great, and and the fact that the uh, and it's it's another movie makes reality. I mean, what was the plot for V for Vendetta? I mean, we were talking about this all the way back at the beginning yeah. of the pandemic. You create a virus that you already have the drug for. You use it to get rich and powerful. And this is Pfizer is I always tell people, if you want to talk about drug dealers, criminal drug dealers, compared to Pfizer, El Chapo is your local street corner thug. Nobody has, has operated on a criminal scale the size of Pfizer. This is a company that is one of the most criminally punished and fined drug companies in the world, not for killing 10,000, not for killing 100,000, not for killing or disabling million, you know, single million, but tens of millions. You know, it's Pfizer that was connected to the book John Le Carre wrote, The Constant Gardener, about impermissible medical experimentation in Africa. I mean, that's who this company mm-hmm. is. And in fact, and so the fact they've been screaming and doing everything possible to keep us from getting discovery in the Brooke Jackson case uh, against them told me, oh, they're, they are sitting on all kinds of scandals. And as soon as this video comes out, they don't refute the video. They don't refute the individual in it. They don't disclaim anything connected to it. Instead, they put out on Friday night, they put out a press release that you have to dig through it. Some lawyer wrote that, not even a press person, to yeah, dig yeah. through it to say, well, now and then we may actually mutate viruses for experimental purposes, but let's not call it gain of function. You know, it's like there's a basically admission. You know, once again, James O'Keefe and Project Veritas nailed it, which is why they're trying to keep YouTube from uh, promoting it, trying to keep the media. Media doesn't want to talk about it because it's one of the most explosive documentary videos. And now I know why they are so desperate to not allow Brooke Jackson a sneak peek at their real documents and discovery in her huge whistleblower case pending in federal mm. court. Yeah. Did you hear Brett Weinstein's take on that? Yes. And, I, I, and he has been really great on this all the way through for years. Yeah. I listened to his podcast that he did with his wife over the weekend. And his take w- w- was one that I hadn't heard before. I haven't even, I didn't really think about it because I didn't really watch too much of those videos. I was doing other things. But his take, just a summary, is that this kid could have been hired not due to merit but just due to the fact that he's African-American and Pfizer is trying to go down this woke path. And he could have been just incredibly incompetent because what he was disclosing to the, the, the person with the undercover camera was, might have been an admission, but if it was an admission, it was nonsense. Like scientifically, it didn't really add up. So either he was just, just spitballing it to, I don't know how that would impress a, a date, but impress a date, or he was admitting something, trying to look cool, but he's so damn incompetent that what he was admitting was nonsense. 
And I think, I don't want to put words in, in Brett's mouth, but I think that was kind of his base case because when he, when James O'Keefe confronted him the next day or whenever it was, and he just completely loses his mind when he's on the phone, he immediately says that he's surrounded by like five white guys or something. So Brett was like, okay, obviously he's on this kind of woke, excuse me, woke power trip to where he's not afraid to use that to try to gain power over someone. So why wouldn't he be willing to use that to get a job? And obviously Pfizer uh, trying to go down this, you know, corporate woke path to wave the flag and virtue signal. Uh, they're more interested in hiring people right now due to certain boxes that they tick that make them look good from a progressive standpoint as opposed to merit. And I, I thought that was an interesting take on it. Yeah, I think two things. One, I think, you know, the fact that he appears to be uh, a gay, woke black guy makes yeah, right. him, uh, you know, gives him three bonus points for getting in uh, to corporate employment. And I think the second thing is what he really did is, uh, but he was a, he's a very young doctor. So I don't think he fully understood, as Brett points out, the what the real science is. Yeah, yeah. But I think he stumbled into it uh, because you know, he was just putting in, I think, his core conclusion, even though his scientific means of getting there is is not wasn't quite he didn't fully understand his conclusion was very apt and that was he realized okay as drug companies what we're really how do we build desire for a product we make sure there's a disease that that will promote that product and and that's always been a risk that 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 uh that, you know in medicine's unique that way it's a place where the free market system can get distorted yeah. because you have an incentive to create disease in order to create profit and i think that's what he understood in the end, he saw some terminology. They gave him such a high-ranking position. He saw enough of the documents and information that he grabbed bits and pieces. And while he put the pieces of the puzzle together, and probably in the wrong scientific order, they were actual pieces of pu the puzzle. Right. And they do lead to the practical conclusion that he talks about, which is Pfizer's profits depend on more disease rather than less. Yeah, yeah. So then now let's move on to the the Paul Pelosi deal where I didn't watch this either because I, I'm like, I don't need the, the drama. But I, I guess the first question is like, who's opening the door? And uh, but anyway, you had a, a fantastic take on this whole situation when it first came out. You know, like, why aren't there any security guards? Like, what, how, how did this guy like just open the back door? Why was it open? You know, but what's your take on this most recent revelation? So the video, I mean, I don't know about you, George, but when someone's kidnapping me, I always uh, get a drink and uh, just sort of chill and open the door <laughs> with a drink. Don't you? Yeah. Isn't that natural? The, uh, yeah. So everything about this still screams something about this story does not add up. So right. you have somebody that's as wealthy as Pelosi, that's as politically targeted as that house has been for prior protests, doesn't have any security presence. And the usually what that means, I always say that the, a red flag of a false flag is our unusual security lapses of some mm. type. Um, and here, my guess, usually what happens, there, there's a it's the, the same reason that Paul Pelosi may not have had any security present at his house that night, such that some random schmuck could walk in the, the side door. Uh, it's probably the same reason Bill Clinton told the Secret Service they could stay home when he hopped on uh, the Lolita Express to go down to Epstein Island. Right. He, you don't want security around when you're up to things you don't want them to see or witness. Uh, so I still think that's probably part of the backstory that they're trying to hide and suppress. 
but otherwise, how he opened the door is still unexplained. Why he has a drink in his hand makes absolutely no sense at all. Why he's sitting there just kind of casually holding a hammer with the guy uh, while talking to the police is totally wacko. I mean, if you had somebody that was trying to hurt you, wouldn't you, as soon as that door opens, run to get out the door yeah. rather than just, hey, how are you doing? What are you going to do with that hammer? Hold on a second. Let me take a drink. So nothing about this makes any sense at all. There's definitely something there that they're hiding. I don't know what it is, but the more we hear and see about this case, the weirder it gets. Do you think it just ends here or do you think something else surfaces? I think something else will surface unless they, they need controlled opposition, what I call captured counsel. One of the keys in all these kind of cases is to make sure the lawyer for the defendant is playing ball. Uh, like, you know, some believe Tim McVeigh's lawyer kind of played ball with the government. A lot of discovery was never disclosed in that case about Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Lee, uh, uh, James Earl Ray's lawyer was kind of captured counsel, made sure things about the Kenneth King assassination never really came out. So there's a, there's a history of those kind of lawyers being involved in these kind of cases where they're really more loyal to the system than they are exposing the system. There's some argument that happened in the Unabomber case uh, where Ted Kaczynski's lawyer could have exposed a whole bunch, including Ted Kaczynski being an MK ultra victim from Harvard. Uh, None of that ever got fully outed or exposed. Also big fourth amendment issues about how they even searched his house in the first place out in the woods uh, based on very questionable evidentiary substantiation. So uh, the only way ever the whole truth comes out, is if he has a conscientious lawyer that wants to tell the whole truth and dig into all the, the black holes they want to hide. Uh, my guess is otherwise, normally the way these cases end is he cuts a plea deal. Uh, his lawyer never presents his full defense, never does full discovery, or he gets Epstein while he's in jail. You're talking uh, if, about the dude that, that clubbed Pelosi. Yeah. Yeah. The guy that, so that's the, like, who's the most likely person to be able to expose the whole truth? Him and particularly his lawyer, digging, digging, digging. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yep. So I've had this in other cases where someone will hire me and I'll know where to dig. And usually then they give my client a very sweet deal so that I'll stop digging. Uh, So I had a case where very prominent tax lawyer had been indicted on a bunch of charges. He was up against a billionaire. And the reality was the billionaire was involved in corruption in Brazil with Lula, by the way, uh, and involved with, uh, but deeply involved with President Clinton. And I kept telling all the prosecutors, as soon as I get a hearing on anything, bail, pretrial motion to dismiss, whatever, first person I'm subpoenaing was then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And the second person is William Jefferson Clinton. And the uh, uh, as soon as I got close to that and was doing other discovery, all of a sudden they give my client a sweetheart deal. Let him out of jail, say, ah, you know, we don't need to go much further on this. This is all good. So that that's how, see how aggressive the discovery is. See how, if he gets a sweetheart deal, then uh, he had a good lawyer that did a good job. If he gets a weird deal or he ends up uh, with a weak defense or he ends up you know, getting Epstein, then you know uh, something wasn't fully on the up and up in this case. I wonder if that's why he pled non-guilty. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some, there's got to be a huge backstory here. You, you see what I mean? Because when he – I know that he basically admitted everything to the police and then he comes out and pleads non-guilty – or not guilty, but if you knew that the prosecution can only take it so far 
and the defense knows that if they press certain buttons, they're going to wave the white flag like immediately. Just like you were saying, like, why not just plead not guilty? Because you know this guy's most likely going to get off the hook because he has information that the other side does not want out in the open. Do you think that's what happened around the same time frame? All of a sudden, Nancy Pelosi is no longer interested in being the Democratic Party leader. I was going to ask you, that was my next question. Do you think this uh, is uh, a, a factor in her wanting to retire? Uh, it, it, it could easily be. And, and then you had the Pelosi's making unusual stock trades. Because for people who don't know, uh, you know, the greatest hedge fund in the world the last 40 years has been the Pelosi stock trades. Nobody's as successful <laughs> yeah, yeah. as the Pelosi's are, <laughs> yeah, magically. Yeah, right. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, they were started making very they started dumping a bunch of stocks not long after this time frame, too. Like, oh, like they were trying either. to liquidate all their positions. Hmm. Yeah. So I suspect something's there that could be very bad and very embarrassing. And they're trying to run out the clock uh, to, until the point nobody cares anymore because they're no longer in positions of power and they have all their cash in the bank. Yeah, right. So let's just. Take a back seat, let this get out of the news cycle, sweep it under the rug, and just try to move on. Yep. Nothing to see here. Nothing like the naked gun scene with the fire going on behind it. Nothing to see here. <laughs> All right, buddy. Awesome conversation as always. Tell everyone about what you do on locals and what you do with Viva and all the stuff that you all the content that you create that people can follow. Absolutely. So uh, if people want that farm fresh milk or any other a bunch of great foods that he is still allowed to sell, you can go to AmosMillerOrganicFarm.com. Cool. And if you want any of the content that we create or produce, Viva and I, including hush hush videos on, uh, uh, you know, conspiratorial alternative narratives over history, you can get all of that at VivaBarnesLaw.Locals.com. Awesome, buddy. All right. Well, Enjoy the rest of your day. I'll look forward to seeing you next in Jekyll Island. That's right. We're going to see you here at the end of February in Jekyll Island. And then for everyone uh, else who is thinking about coming to Rebel Capitalist Live, make sure you get your tickets ASAP. We're going to have the amazing Robert Barnes there, Lynn Alden, Mike Maloney, uh, Chris McIntosh. We just had Simon Black with Sovereign Man. Uh, he just gave us the green light. He's going to be there. And I was just talking to someone. You know, I might be able to spill the beans right now, Robert. I think I probably can. I got a text from my good buddy Peter Schiff yesterday. And there's a, we'll call it a very, very, very good chance, 95% chance uh, that he's going to be at Rebel Capitalist Live as well, speaking there with you. So super excited, guys. If you haven't got your tickets, go to rebelcapitalistlive.com right now and grab them. And we'll see you on the next video.